they never get to the point where they can say, I've done enough and now I can stop. You can almost picture the scene. It's the waiting room. It's overflowing. The patients are relatively young, nearly all of them between the ages of 18 and 22. And they need to see a specialist, and they need to see one right now. As, as they sit in that waiting room, the analog clock is ticking away loudly into the silence, and you look, and they're all hunched over, looking down, looking into their lap, their thumbs, a frantic array of energy pouring into their phones. Every one of these students is there in the psych ward of student health because they're sick and they're waiting to see a psychiatrist. What's going on? Benoit Denizé-Lewis in New York Times Magazine says they never get to the point where they can say, I've done enough and now I can stop. Over the last decade, anxiety, that crushing sense of being burdened, has overtaken depression as the most common reason college students seek counseling services. It's also one of the reasons they get caught up in substance abuse, in, 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 in drug issues, in all sorts of unhealthy and risky behaviors because they're trying to medicate the anxiety, the emptiness, the burden that weighs down on their soul. In its annual survey of students, the American College Health Association found a significant increase. It's now over 62% of undergraduates who report overwhelming anxiety. Surveys that look at symptoms related to anxiety are also telling. In 1985, the Higher Education Research Institute at UCLA began asking incoming college freshmen if they, quote, felt overwhelmed by all that they had to do during the previous year. In 1985... 18% said they did. By 2010, that number had increased to 29%, and the most recent numbers are over 41%. For a lot of these young people, particularly that senior year of, of high school, going into college, the biggest single stressor is that they never get to the point where they can say, I've done enough, and now I can stop. One expert says there's always one more activity one more AP class, one more thing to do in order to get to the top college. Kids have a sense that they're not measuring up and the pressure is relentless and getting worse. What about you? Are you burdened? Are you feeling the anxiety in your soul? Some of you know what that feels like. You feel it in your career or maybe it's in your family. Or maybe it's in your marriage or in your relationships or your lack of relationships or maybe it's with your finances or maybe it's related to your use of social media, that need to constantly be doing something, constantly getting things done, never getting to a point where you can say it's enough and I can stop now. Are you weary this morning? Are you burdened? We're going to look at the words of Jesus, our Savior. Matthew chapter 11, he speaks to us, but first he speaks to God, his Father. And he says this, Matthew 11, beginning in verse 25. At that time, Jesus said, I praise you, Father, Lord of heaven and earth, because you have hidden these things from the wise and learned and revealed them to little children. Yes, Father, for this was your good pleasure. All things have been committed to me by my Father. No one knows the Son except the Father, and no one knows the Son except the the Father except the Son, and those to whom the Son chooses to reveal Him. 
Come to me, all you who are weary and burdened, and I will give you rest. Take my yoke on you and learn from me, for I am gentle and humble in heart, and you will find rest for your souls. For my yoke is easy and my burden is light. What do we see here? We see in this passage the welcome of Jesus to sinners like me, to sinners like us. It's the welcome of Jesus. Why do we need the welcome of Jesus? We need it, friends, because Jesus calls us the weary and the burdened. What is weariness? You know, weariness is distinct from being physically tired. Tiredness is a physical depletion. Where physically you've exercised, you've been working out, you've been doing all this stuff, and you just feel like you can't take another step. You need to crash on the couch in order to recuperate. But weariness is a tiredness of the soul. And no amount of being on the couch will actually ever bring you recuperation. Because it's not physical exhaustion. It is spiritual fatigue. A deep exhaustion of of the soul. It's what we experience when you you start to feel overwhelmed and you find yourself getting shaky and you get to a breaking point and you think, "I, I can't keep this up. I can't go on anymore. This isn't sustainable. And yet the thought of quitting feels like a terrible black hole of emptiness and failure, a loss that you can't bear to suffer. I've got a slide of that if you're familiar with Sisyphus. Uh, when your life feels like you're pushing this boulder up a hill and you feel like you can't take one more step and yet you know if you relax for even a second, that boulder is going to crush you to death and your life will be destroyed. Is that you this morning? Or is that someone you love this morning? Maybe somebody sitting next to you in a pew. We're going to talk about that. Where does it come up? Sometimes we like to suggest that that weariness comes from religion, and that certainly can happen, and Jesus is going to speak to that this morning in this passage. But it's something deeper than that. Why do we need it? We're weary and burdened because we're hardwired for a performance treadmill. We have this inbuilt drive to justify ourselves, to validate our existence, to matter, to be significant. You know, for me... It, it works out with my personality. I have this constant drive to, to, to get things done. To, I, I am a list maker. Any list makers in here? Uh, hi, I'm Greg. I am a list maker. And, uh, and I get a, yeah, hi, Greg. I get a palpable thrill every time I can scratch something off a post-it note. I mean, it's like it's, it's endorphins just going off inside me. I got something done. And a good day is a day when I get 15 things scratched off my list. And what really gets me depressed is when I've gone through the entire day and nothing is off my list. I've done a little bit of work on all of them. For some of you, it's, it's the cycle of getting home from work. And as soon as you get home from work, there's somebody you have to say hi to. And as soon as you've gotten that off your list, then you have to start getting dinner ready. And as soon as dinner is ready, then you have to start cleaning up some of the dishes as a sort of a pre-clean. And as soon as that's done, you're getting everybody to the table. And as soon as everybody's eaten, you're doing the dishes. And as soon as the dishes are done, you're getting the kids down. And as soon as the kids are down, you're checking your email. And then you're checking your apps. And you know, for some of you, it's, it's not that. It's just that you can spend an entire day cycling through apps on your phone. You can spend 
you know, hours and hours and hours going through, you know, work Facebook, personal Facebook, work email, personal email, Twitter, bbc.com, news section. You know, it's, and, and, and then as soon as you're done with that, it's time to cycle back to the beginning and you realize you've blown an entire day and you do not have any rest in your soul. You're more anxious than when you began. Tim Kreider of the New York Times says this. He says, busyness serves as a kind of hedge against emptiness. Obviously, your life cannot possibly be silly or trivial or meaningless if you're so busy, if you're completely booked in demand every hour of the day. He writes, we're busy, for, we're busy because of our own ambition or drive or anxiety because we're addicted to busyness and dread what we might have to face in its absence. You see it? It robs you of peace, but we all have this inbuilt performance treadmill, this need to perform, this need to accomplish, this need to validate our own souls. And both religion and irreligion can be part of the problem. Jesus is speaking to a whole bunch of of, of first century Jews who have been weighed down with burdens by by Pharisaical teachings, teaching with there's a rule for everything, and there are rules for the rules, and there are procedures for the rules of the rules, and there are procedures for the procedures of the rules of the rules. You have to tithe your mint and cumin, your kitchen spices on top of everything else. You got all of these things weighing them down and crushing their soul as they're constantly trying to fulfill all of it, always wondering if it's enough and never getting to that place where they can say, I've done enough now. I can stop never getting to a place where they can rest. And religion can do that if your walk with God is all about what you do for God and not about what he has done already for you. And yet that internal drive to justify ourselves, that internal drive to validate my existence as a person, it's, it's, it's deeper than just religion. You know, you can strip away all forms of religion and it's still there because it's a psychological drive in our souls. For you, maybe it translates primarily to career ambition. And you would be absolutely devastated if your career fell apart. And so you have that drive and you're crawling over people's backs. You're doing whatever it takes, always trying to, to get ahead because, because that's that drive to justify yourself and it works out in, in your career. But, but for others, it might mean be all about getting into the right college or getting published in the right kind of journals or being liked by the right people or being perceived as competent or, 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 or being sought out for advice or, or projecting sufficient beauty and desirability or being the perfect parent. You know? And so you stay up until three in the morning working on the perfect Halloween costume for your newborn and, uh, and you think, gosh, is that religious? No, that's not religious, but is that theological? Oh my gosh, that's theological. Because that's that deep spiritual need, a need of the soul, a drive uh, to keep it up, to appear accomplished, to be accepted, approved, validated. For me, I was feeling it this week. There was a point this week where I was so down. And I don't generally get down a ton, but I was so weary. And I I was just talking to God, thinking, God, I don't know that I can keep this up. I am exhausted, Lord. And and I knew it wasn't physical exhaustion because I hadn't done anything except write up a bunch of stuff. And that doesn't take a lot of energy physically. And yet what dawned on me as I sought, sought God's face and, and, and meditated on his word and looked at what was going on in my soul is what was really driving my weariness was the need to be a pastor of a successful church. And, uh, and, and so every, every threat to that would crush my soul and make me weary. And because that even doing something that God wants you to do can become an idol in the heart. It can become 
this need that's really about me medicating my soul with something other than Jesus. And it leaves us constantly working and constantly striving. My joy did not come back until I gave that over to God and said, God, that results are your job. You just want me to be faithful and you love me. Leaves us constantly working, constantly striving, and then when we fail, it leaves us crushed. Um, you know, if you succeed, it, you can become very arrogant and crawl over a lot of people to get what you want. But, but if you fail, you know, and some of you know failure really well, you know, and you may say to yourself, you know, God, God may forgive me. That's easy, but I don't know if I can ever forgive myself. Have you ever heard those words in your own soul, in your own heart? You know, when you hear that, you have an opportunity for some spiritual diagnostics. What is it that you're really living for? Because if you're saying you can't forgive yourself, then you're not living for God. Because if you were living for God, then God's forgiveness would weigh a whole lot more in your heart than it does. What is it that you were living for that you failed at? What was it that was your real God? your real justification, your real salvation? What was your real validation? What was it that you were looking for to validate your existence and because you failed at it, you cannot forgive yourself because that's your real God. That's your real Savior. That's the one that Jesus is calling you to come to me and trade it in because that one will keep you weary and burdened and crushed. You will have no rest for your soul because you're trying to justify yourself and it's leaving you utterly devastated, hopeless, and filled with anxiety. Whatever it is, it could be your career, it could be your image, your status, a relationship that you think you need to have. Whatever it is, it's the thing that is enslaving you. And Jesus is saying to you this morning, come to me and trade it in for a better God, a better Savior, a better better significance, a better righteousness. Then you won't feel like a zero. And you'll feel your burden and your weariness lifted up into Christ. That drive to justify ourselves, it makes it nearly impossible for us to come to Jesus. You know, you remember the parable of the prodigal son that Jesus tells in Luke's Gospel really the parable of two sons because it's primarily about the second one because Jesus had been talking to a whole bunch of sinners and prostitutes and tax collectors and the kind of people that Jesus actually enjoyed hanging out with as opposed to the others and uh, and the religious people the Pharisees were judging him and, and he told this story about two sons there's the younger brother who goes up to his dad and says dad I wish you were dead could you give me your inheritance early that's basically the gist of it what it would have meant to a first century Jew And the dad is incredibly gracious and gives him half of the inheritance or a third or whatever his portion was. Uh, uh, And and the son goes off and he's totally into everything. It's the sex, the drugs, the rock and roll, uh, 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 you know, dance and chew and go with girls that do. The whole nine yards, he just lived it up. He was the life of the party and and did a lot of really awful things too. But uh, eventually he was broke. And there's famine in the land, and he started working in a pigsty, which is an unclean profession, because that's all he could do. He didn't want to die. And he thought, you know, I need to go back to my, my dad, and I can't be his son anymore, because I already took my inheritance and told him I wished he was dead. But maybe I could be a slave. And so he goes back, and he's got his speech, and he says, that, you know, you know a, a person no longer my father, can I be your slave? And, 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 and the dad hears nothing of it. He, he goes, and he grabs this son, and he holds him, and he, 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 he kisses him. And he loves on him, and he puts a cloak on his back and his signet ring on his finger, making him again a son and with a new inheritance. Where'd that come from? That's 
uh, and then he slays the fatted calf and has a party because his son was dead and now is alive and all he wanted was his son back. And then while they're all partying, his elder brother, that's the one, the story's really about him. Uh, the elder brother, the Presbyterian, he uh, uh, hears, he's, he's off working really hard, getting things done scratching things off his post-it note and feeling validated by it. And he comes and he hears all this ruckus and he's like, hey, what's going on in here? Oh, your, your elder brother's back and, 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 and your dad uh, threw a big party for him and, and gave him a ring and a, a robe and, and, and a fatted calf and he's indignant. He's disgusted and he refuses to go in to the party. Why? He makes his father humiliate himself and come out and beg. And the father does that. He begs because he loves his son too. And, 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 and yet, what does the son say? What is it that keeps him out of the kingdom of God? What is it that keeps him out of the celebration? What is it that alienates him from his father? All these years I slaved for you, he says, and you didn't even give me a young calf. What kept him out of the kingdom was his righteousness. See, there are two ways to go to hell, folks. You can go to hell because of your sins. That's easy. You can also go to hell because of your righteousness, and that's even easier because that's what you have to let go of in order to enter into the celebration. Both religion and irreligion can put you on a treadmill of performance that leaves you far from God with a heart that is cold and not tender toward him and will leave you empty and weary and burdened. And Jesus is inviting you today to step off the treadmill into his arms of compassion. Jesus is speaking to you. And he's saying, come to me. That's what collapsing into the embrace of Jesus is. That's the welcome of Jesus. He says, come to me. You know, Ann Lotz learned about the embrace of Jesus from her dad. Um, her dad happened to have been named Billy Graham. He was famous. Uh, and when Anne was 17 years old, she was involved in a car accident. She had been speeding down a windy mountain hill and totally crashed her car into the next-door neighbor's car. And the next-door neighbor was there, and it was awful. Like, her front end was all smashed in. The other lady, her car was smushed in on the side. And, and so, so Anne freaked out because she was not going to go back and tell her dad what just happened. So she spent the entire day going to get coffee, going to the bookstore, talking with friends, you know, going to the drugstore, going to get groceries everything and she waited until the very end of the night and tried to tiptoe into the house unnoticed and there just inside standing in the kitchen was her father and there was a long quiet awkward pause until finally she just broke down in tears and she ran up to her father and she threw her arms around him and he threw his arms around her and she started weeping and she told him everything that had happened and her dad told her four things. He said, Anne, I knew all along about your wreck. Mrs. Pickering came straight up the mountain and told me. I was just waiting for you to come tell me yourself. And he said, Anne, I love you. And he said, we can fix the car. And he told her, you're going to be a better driver because of this. Friends, sooner or later, you're going to be in a wreck. And it's going to be bad. And at that point, all your father wants is for you to come and to fall into an embrace of, of love and compassion and delight. 
See, Jesus' call to you is personal. No one can come to Jesus for you. It's easy in a theologically uh, articulate context to propositionalize this and make it all about believing the right principles and doing the right behaviors. And there are right principles and there are right behaviors, but you can miss the person of Jesus who is actually here among you today. And he's actually saying, no, I want you to come to me. You can't rely on someone else to do this for you. You need to come to me, to my person, and to receive the welcome of Jesus. Has Jesus captured your heart? Uh, You know, I've told the story before about the restaurant in Georgia. It's literally out in the middle of nowhere. Travel writers have talked about it. And and you you drive down the highway, and then you get off onto this two-lane road, and then you get off onto this one-lane kind of tar and, and gravel road, and then you turn off, and eventually you're on this, like, windy little one-lane dirt road in the middle of nowhere, and there are chickens and roosters walking around. There are pigs walking around. There are children half-closed walking around outside in diapers. And you come to this little shack of a restaurant, and outside, instead of a parking lot, they have laid all kinds of carpets and rugs out on the grass with chickens and roosters walking around as well. And as you, you, you pull up your car and you're kind of looking in to see if it's safe, this guy comes out, huge, massive man with an apron and his arms are flailing and he's crying, my family, my family has come to see me. My family is here. And as you're getting out of your car, he's, he's jumping back inside and then back outside again. He says, I knew my family was coming. As soon as I heard your car coming down the gravel road, I said, my family has come to see me. I've already thrown some cornbread in the oven because my family is here. And he gives you a big, massive hug. He takes you inside and he seats you down. He says, I am so happy my family has come. I'm going to fix some food for my family. You think, okay, well, that's a really clever gimmick. But Jesus is watching you roll by. And you're looking out the window and you are seeing if he seems safe. And I understand that Jesus is the one who is saying, my family has come, my family has come to see me. And all he wants to do is give you a big massive embrace and bring you into his home and sit you down at his table for the feast he's prepared for you because you're his family. Jesus talks about it as a, 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 a buried treasure that when you, when you see this, this treasure that's buried in a field, he says it's like you go and you sell everything you have. You sell your house. You sell your car. You, sell, you can't sell your children. You sell everything you and your children own and possess in order to get the one thing that is going to cause you delight and joy and bring you security. And that one thing is the buried treasure. And friends, when Jesus captures your heart, And I pray for this every day for you as a congregation that Jesus would so capture your heart that you would be ready to sell everything you have in order to have the welcome of Jesus who comes to you with outstretched arms, his validation. My prayer, friends, is that you would have hearts that are so sensitive toward Jesus because you love Jesus. Jesus, and you don't want to do anything to break covenant with him. You're eager to humble yourself before him because he is your treasure. He is your family, and he is your hope. How is it possible to come to him in that way? It's possible because Jesus is gentle with you. He says, come to me, you who are weary and burdened, for I am gentle. He is not one who's going to to break a bruised reed. 
He is a friend of sinners and prostitutes and tax collectors. He knows everything you've done. He knows what's inside of you. He knows what you're going to do. And he is gentle with you. He is not harsh. He's not going to break you. He's not going to smack you. He's not going to yell at you. His love for you is infinite and tender. It's because he's gentle, but it's also because he was humble for us. He says, come to me, you who are weary and burdened, and I will give you rest, for I am humble. When you think about the humiliation of Christ, his self-humbling for our sake, what that drives you to is the cross of Christ, in which Christ himself, God the Son, became human for our sake, humbling himself and taking a position of a servant and then going to the cross, going to his death in order to carry your burdens and to give you his. What does that look like? It's what Martin Luther called the great exchange where, where Christ Jesus has a lifetime of righteousness always doing what pleases the Father. And I have a lifetime of sin and guilt and shame and things I don't want anybody to know about. And on the cross, what Jesus does is he takes my burden. He takes your burden. And he takes it to the cross. And he, he, he takes that debt and he pays that debt and he pays it in full. He takes the anger and justice of God for what I have done and for what I have become. He does that for you so there's no more wrath of God for you because Christ has absorbed every last drop of it into himself on the cross. He takes your burden and he carries it to the cross because he loves you. And yet he does something else. He gives you his burden, which is light. This Jesus who all of his life was righteous and holy, who always did what pleased the Father, who raised Lazarus from the dead, who who walked with God in absolute righteousness and holiness and knowledge. That Jesus takes his righteousness and he credits it to you when you trust him. He credits it to you so that now you have the resume of Jesus. You are not carrying your burden of sin. You're carrying his burden of worth and honor and glory and righteousness. That means, friends, that, 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 that you are not merely forgiven if you have Jesus. Forgiveness, it's not enough. You know, the difference between forgiveness and righteousness, I, I've, I've told you this a dozen times, and I'm going to keep doing it because every time somebody comes and says, oh my gosh, I think I just got it for the first time. But it's, it's like if you can walk into Commerce Bank and, 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 and you haven't been real good with your finances. You've bounced about 10 checks this week and defaulted on three loans and your mortgage is in default and you've paid back none of it and you've got all these late fees on top of that and, and, and you walk up to the teller and she sits you down in, a, in one of the t- chairs and uh, you know she, she looks over her glasses at you and she says, I'm going to be kind to you. I'm just going to zero out all of these debts and, and just forgive all of it. And you think, oh my gosh. And you're walking out the door back to your car. And at that point, are you forgiven of your debts? Yes. But what else is true of you is that you are bankrupt. And at that point, the bank doesn't ever want to see your ugly face again. And some of you are stuck there in your relationship with God because you've trusted Jesus to forgive you. But that's it. And that's only half the story. 
Righteousness is a little different. Righteousness is when the owner of the bank comes rushing out to your car, flailing his arms, saying, oh, I'm so, so sorry, ma'am. We made a terrible mistake. Will you please come back in? And, and he ushers you through the lobby, into the back office, down the hallway to the nice corner office with the mahogany desk and all of the animal heads on the walls. It's kind of weird. But he sits you down at his chair behind the desk, and he says, I am so sorry. That teller, he's new here. He didn't understand. I'm just going to go ahead and, and, and sign over the bank into to your ownership now. We've got a guy outside with some oil paints and a canvas. He needs to capture your likeness so we can put it up in the lobby. That's righteousness. See, forgiveness says you can go now. But righteousness says you can come. And Jesus is saying, come to me. We'll trade burdens. I take your burden to the cross. And you can walk with my burden. And you will never find a lighter burden in earth, in hell, in heaven, anywhere. It's like you get Jesus' resume. God sitting there looking at your resume, interviewing you for a job. And if you are in Christ, what that means is that he's looking at your resume saying, you know, that part where you raised Lazarus from the dead was phenomenal. And when you fed those 5,000 people with just a few loaves and fishes, oh my gosh, and you never sinned against me ever. You've always did what pleases me, and I am delighting in you right now. That is the love of God for you if you have Jesus, because Christ has taken your burden, and he has given you his own. There's nothing you can do to embellish that resume. Ooh, I had a good worship experience. Put that on there too. No, don't put that on there. Jesus is enough. It's, it's Christianity 1.0. It's 100% grace. It's 200 proof gospel. It's nothing plus Jesus, which is everything. Jesus is saying, lay down your burdens. Those burdens are my job now. And once you get this, once this clicks inside of you, then that means there's no more treadmill not in your job, not in your relationships. That means you're free to fail. You're free to fail miserably. You're also free to take risks because you don't, your identity is not bound up in being successful. It means there's no more categorizing people as good or bad, no more refusing to forgive someone because they sinned against you because you've been forgiven so much more. It means there's no more anger just because your priorities are threatened. Martin Luther said, the only thing we contribute to our salvation is the sin. Jesus brings everything else And that's why those last words on the cross were, it is finished. There's nothing more for you to do but to say yes every day, a continual yes to the welcome of Jesus who is your rest. Friends, rest from your labor. Rest from your hard work. Rest from the people pleasing. Rest from the need to measure up. Rest from the need to succeed. Rest from the need to have it together. Rest from the need for man's acceptance and praise. Rest from your religiosity because Jesus is the physician in student health this morning and he is speaking to you and he is saying, friends, you've done enough. You measure up. You can rest now. Jesus who humbled himself and labored for you already did the work and has made you pleasing to God because Jesus is not a religion. He is a rescuer. And he's saying, come to me, come to me, come to me and rest. I've often used the illustration of the coin dropping because I've seen it drop in so many people's lives and seen the joy come back. You know what it was like back when I was young and you needed a soda and you were out in some store and and always in the entryway, they had the soda machine. There was always the Pepsi one and the Coke one and then the weird one with everything else. 
and uh, you go to the Pepsi one or the Coke one, because you don't go to the weird one, um, and uh, you put back then your two quarters in. <laughs> that was nice. Um, but sometimes, you know, it went wrong. You remember when you'd put your quarter in, and you'd wait, and you'd hear, and it didn't sound right, because you put your quarter in, and it goes, ding! But you put your quarter in, and you don't hear the ding, because the coin didn't drop. And you look around, check for security cameras, make sure no one's around, and then you lunge into that monster machine until you're going to get your soda, and you kick it, and you shake it, and you try not to knock it completely over, because it will kill you. Do not do this at home. But, but you're shaking it, and then finally you hear the, the drop. And then you push, and you get your Coke Zero because the coin dropped. And some of you, the gospel of Jesus is somewhere inside of you. And you may even be Christian, but you're still waiting for the coin to drop when you actually feel the freedom and the pleasure and the delight of your Father. And I am praying for that for you every day that the coin would drop and set you free so that you can get off the treadmill into the arms of your Savior, Jesus, because he is humble and he is gentle and he will give you rest for your soul. It's the welcome of Jesus. As you picture God looking on you now, what face do you see? Jesus tells us that the face of our God tells us what it looks like. In that parable of the prodigal son, it is the prodigal father who hitches up his skirts to greet his wayward son. And in the first century, this was a particularly shameful and humiliating thing because it brought in a gender switch that would have made any, you know, Palestinian Jewish man feel very uncomfortable in the first century. Any Greek as well, because as theologian Kenneth Bailey explains, the father in the parable acted, quote, like an overwrought woman, which for a father in first century Palestine was to completely humiliate himself. You know, you have that picture in your mind of, of that young soldier returning back home to America from the Second World War, and he's coming home to a farm somewhere in Iowa, and his mama can see the vehicle kicking up a cloud of dust far in the distance, and Ma and Pa are out there. They're on the front porch. They're straining to see if it's him. And as the young soldier gets closer to home, Pa stands there stoic, ready to greet his boy, a soldier with a proud handshake. But not Ma. She hitches up her skirt and jumps down off the side of the porch with a pronounced thud, and she starts running down the road. She's ripped her stocking on the side of the deck. She's tossing her shoes to one side and the other. Her dress is pulled up way too high to be decent in public, and there are tears pouring down her face. And what makeup she once had is smeared and runny, and her mouth is contorting as it wails out indecipherable sounds from deep within her soul, and she's babbling unintelligently. Her arms are flailing about at her side as she runs. Mouth open in disbelief, not a shred of concern to be composed or proper or ladylike. She crashes into her son like a ten-ton truck smashing into a barrel of apples. She's grabbing him tightly in her arms, and then she picks him up off the ground in her embrace, and she's wailing with tears of joy, kissing his forehead nonstop. This isn't some far-off warrior to her. This is not a soldier to her. This isn't somebody useful to her. This is her boy. 
and her boy has come home and she's overcome with joy and delight because her baby is alive. She doesn't care how it looks. She doesn't care what people say. She loves that boy because she's his mama and baby boy has come home to her at last. That is the face Jesus is describing in the parable of the prodigal son. Jesus is saying that it is his face as he rushes to greet you, the face of an overwrought woman filled with joy that her boy is alive. It's the Savior's embrace for you and for me. And it's the way God humiliates himself in his joy over you. No matter where you've been, no matter what God's going to call you to, no matter what your experience, no matter what burden you have brought to him, God is delighted. And Jesus is running to pick you up off the ground, to smother you with his affection, with his love for you. It's not the staid, buttoned-down, stoic love of an Iowa dad, but is the overwhelming, jubilant, buoyant, shameless love of an Iowa mama for her grown-up boy who's come home from the war. Whether you love Jesus or not, he is crazy about you if you name him as your Savior. That's the grace that sent him to live his life on your behalf, to die on your behalf, to rise for you. There's nothing on earth that's going to rob you of that. Jesus is calling you now. He's saying, come to me and rest. Friends, quit all your striving. Lay aside your endless projects at self-validation. Lay your burdens down. Come to me, Jesus is saying, and collapse in my arms at the welcome of Jesus. Come to me, you who are weary and burdened, and you will find rest for your soul. Let's pray. Our Father and our God, we give you thanks for Jesus. We give you thanks for his embrace. We give you thanks for his love for sinners like us. We give you thanks for the exuberance of your joy and delight, Lord. You just want our souls. You just want us back because you've called us your family. And so we consecrate to you now the elements on this table, Lord, that you would minister your grace to us, that we might believe and receive the welcome of Jesus, and that you might restore our delight, freeing us from the anxiety, from the burden, from the weariness, into your loving, compassionate embrace. We pray this through Christ our Lord. Amen.